0: This episode of The CFO Playbook is brought to you by Soldo. Soldo changes the way companies spend for the better. It combines company cards with a management platform to make employee expenses and company spending simple and efficient. Soldo is trusted by businesses like Monzo, Mercedes-Benz, and Sony to improve control of company spend. And if you'd like to know more, visit www.soldo.com to book a demo or get in touch. Today, we welcome on the show, Ed Liu. He is the Chief Financial Officer at Fandom, a San Francisco-based gaming and entertainment community platform. Ed is a gaming and media tech executive with deep finance, strategy, and operational experiences focused on venture capital and private equity-backed gaming and B2C companies. He is almost improbably qualified. He holds a master's in management science and engineering from Stanford University, as well as a bachelor's in economics from UC Berkeley. In this episode, Ed and I talk about the explosive growth of the gaming industry over the course of the pandemic, the impact that generative AI will have on game development, and the ups and downs of the financial investment side of the sector. And many, many more different topics. So, let's get into it. Enjoy, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever medium you use. We are joined on the pod today by Ed Liu, the CFO of Fandom. Welcome to the podcast, Ed.
1: Oh, thank you. Excited to be here, Fran. Where are you joining us from today? Oh, I'm in uh, Northern California in the Bay Area. When I was
0: last in the Bay Area, I was in San Fran and uh, it was around this time of year and it had the worst fog I've ever experienced in my life. I'd shown up in shorts and t-shirt
1: and uh, it was, uh, I was very ill prepared. Yeah, yeah, that, that happens here. I'm um, actually quite south of that, um, about an hour and a half south of that uh, in the city called Sunnyvale. Okay, so you're safe from the fog. It's sunny. <laughs> yeah, quite sunny here.
0: So, Ed, as I was researching, um, as I was having you on the podcast, I obviously looked into Fandom and uh, what used to be Wikia, actually. I remember it when I was still Wikia. And you guys, I didn't know this, but Fandom owns GameFAQs, which is a website I spent a lot of time on as a teenager. So uh, thank you, as a <laughs> as an order, you guys, you guys, you guys got me out of so many sticky situations. I, I can, I can remember a, a few frustrating visits to
1: to GameFAQ to try and get past it. Right, right, and that that, that was actually a, a fairly uh, recent ownership. Um, and uh, but yeah, we're we're happy to you know, along with a few other brands that we we actually acquired um this is you know around uh you know q4 of last year uh and, and that no, that's it's worked out well for us but yeah we're we're excited to have those brands with us and they've worked out perfectly so
0: what's your personal story with with the gaming industry because obviously you're immersed in it very heavily as a as a cfo what about ed lou the man did you kind of end up here by accident or is it something that was a very natural trajectory for you you know i've always uh,
1: grown up with gaming and and Interesting. i mean i'm not a you know like a, a professional gamer or, or such but always kind of did it as a as a pastime as a kid and as a lot of people would think of gaming as uh, like my parents did as a, as a vice as something that was negative and something that yeah it would take up a lot of time but had you know zero value that i didn't really fully get into it but always was fascinated by it would follow it um, would play new games that come out and initial part of my career actually was um Uh, In public companies and not gaming related, it was was you know, cut my teeth initially in like semiconductor and hardware companies. And um, while I learned a lot, various facets of accounting and finance through rotational programs, I just didn't find that as interesting. Um, And there was a lot of you know cost accounting and and inventory management, and the complexity of those businesses was very high. And 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 I did learn a lot, but I just wasn't as interested. And then I made a pivot. Gosh, this is probably like 15 plus years ago. Into smaller and then uh, you know gaming companies as well too. And so both of those things, I think, really helped um, sort of marry my professional career and my interest. And so that's how how I got started. i won't go through the specific companies necessarily, but I went through various platforms right um, to learn different business models in gaming, um, so PC, uh, you know, web, free to play, mobile, right, streaming, and so on and so forth. And that really kind of set me up to you know, make the transition over to fandom about five years ago. And I think that the thing about gaming uh, and also fandom, which is more, you know, digital media, you know, a user-generated you know, platform, uh, UGC, user-generated content platform. The complexity of these businesses is a lot lower than that of hardware, right? We're not dealing with inventory. We're not dealing with cost accounting. Um, so it allows me, it frees me and gives me time to allow me to be in front of the business. Right. So I'm working more on strategy, on, you know, business model, on gross margin, on uh, other tangential um, non-finance functions that, uh, you know, not here at Fandom, but in in another life, I was, you know, doing stuff like marketing analytics and business intelligence. I also handle HR, talent acquisition, IT facilities, legal, all of that. Right. Um, So that kind of gives me a breadth of experience. I really enjoyed really, at the end of the day, help the company grow
0: it's interesting because i mean what you talked about how your your parents viewed gaming and it's very similar to, to mine and, and you know i think about back when i just had more time and i didn't have a kid you know i used to game a lot so different the sector is even how much it's changed in like just even in a, de- in a decade like what's your perspective on like just just is it like a different beast compared to what it used to be like even in the past like you know, 10, 5 years ago, in terms of size, in terms of scale.
1: Oh no, absolutely. Yeah, the scale, I mean, you know, the past year or so, I think it's it's been a little softer and kind of in pockets of gaming, but overall the macro trend has been there. Through pandemic, we saw a lot of people that then self-identify as gamers, right? And gamers are of you know various sorts, right? And we tend to think of gamers as hardcore gamers that, you know, spend a lot of money and, you know, are like playing in the basement, you know, the quote unquote basement you know, all day long kind of thing. But um, we've got casual gamers that are playing a lot of these mobile games that are, you know, five, 10 minutes long, you know, for each session. And, you know, it could be as casual as that of like a Candy Crush or any kind of these like hyper games, right? But I think the advent of kind of mobile gaming has really brought in a huge influx of users that then self-identify as gamers. But then you still have the hardcore and mid-core gamers on all the platforms, PC, Console and so on and so forth, and um, you know VR. I think it's been a thing, and it's sort of I think lagged the enthusiasm and kind of uh, excitement that the VCs have had for VR. But it'll eventually catch up. AR, you know, with you know the Apple uh, Vision Pro and Quest, right? From Facebook or for Meta, right? These I think gaming is just um, will continue to dominate. And you know, you've got the talks of metaverse, and there's various camps of what you believe that to look like. But um or metaverses, right? Multiple um of these, but I mean it's uh it's a macro trend, and you know it's kind of in a in between entertainment, but also uh, it's a, somewhat of a profession, right? As you think about influencers, when, right? Um uh on various platforms, uh, Twitch obviously, but uh, you know YouTube and even TikTok these days, right? Uh, gaming is a category people can make money off of. Mm, it's even like a spectator sport. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah.
0: It just seems like such a completely different beast to like how, how I even remember it. But it's 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 interesting though that you mentioned that like the addressable market for it is huge, right? Like you say, like me kind of like playing Sudoku every now and then, like when you get like five or 10 minutes here, it's people that are really hardcore, people that are sort of like more committed and so on. That surely must present like a really big strategic challenge for a CFO in that sector because like who are you aiming at, right? Because it's like, it's so big.
1: How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's depend on the company, right? So again, I've been at various companies, various sizes, various, you know, focus, right? Um, and I think the model I tend to gravitate towards has been free to play. For me, that's it was fascinating because when I started um, at a company called Bitlucky, it was a startup. And then thereafter, I went to a company called the Machine Zone. Both of those were free to play business models. And I kind of love the concept of that. And just to kind of step back a little bit, I mean, it was invented, um, actually, you know, a long time ago, you know, fifteen years ago or so, actually in in Korea, in China, right? Those the companies out there, you know, figured out a way in which to battle piracy, right? So piracy, and unfortunately, in those countries, uh, isn't something that uh, was necessarily cracked down on, and you know, IP rights and so on and so forth isn't something that you know was really easy for the government to again track, so. When you release a game and it costs $60, the day after there's a pirated copy that's 59 and 58. And then as you can see it, right, you're combating this, the economics of it going down to zero, right? And so w- what do you do then? I mean, you still want to make games. You want to uh, make them a, a real business, right? To make them profitable. So the kind of invention of free-to-play you know, came out from a company called Nexon. And it's like, oh, well, the games are actually free for you to play. Like how do you make money and then the invention of then the various business models of you know um eventually in that purchases but just you know ability for you to buy skins and cosmetics but also buy your way through the progression of the game start to kind of really take off and then there are now like battle passes season passes and just you know a a myriad of kind of combination of different ways to monetize that sort of uh, moved over um from the East to the West. And I would say for, you know, about around 20, 2013, 2014, we're starting to see that grow um, initially with like the zingas and the Playdom of the world, and then subsequently moving to mobile with like NG MoCo, And then obviously Machine Zone, you know, was one of the early inventors of aggressive uh, free-to-play monetization. I, I certainly learned a lot there, but, um, and then and free-to-play is fascinating for me is because, the game is free to play. So why would people actually pay money, right? And the biggest thing I learned from that is if a game uh, is highly retentive and uh, engages you, then you're likely to spend a lot of time. But there's another path. If you want to advance a little bit more um, conveniently or a little faster, then you can pay and become sort of a pay to win path that that one can choose. And that tends to work pretty well for, again, free-to-play gaming companies that want to monetize pretty aggressively. And then there, another path um, that I've seen, the League of Legends of the World and a lot, I mean, they, they're the one that kind of really dialed into the cosmetics. It's like, hey, the game itself is really, uh, you don't need to pay at all to play, but if you really love it and you want to have different skins or a different character and so on and so forth, you know, it, then you can purchase, right? And so those tend to, be pretty successful also over time, right? And so, again, we're we're continuing to see the evolution of the business model changing and adapting, you know, in mobile, as an example, with Apple IDFA and, you know, the inability for now for companies to really market directly, uh, I'm talking about performance marketing, directly to the users on the mobile platform has also changed the landscape so that you saw a lot more you know, two, three years ago, it's a lot more of the hyper-casual games coming out, right? So, you know, if the Candy Crush game wasn't casual enough, you had hyper-casual games of, you know, a good example is Coin Master, where it's just like, oh, okay, well, it's just these, you know, sort of idle, you know, automatic loops, and you're just kind of pressing a button. But then they also reinvented on that, where there's actually a meta game, you know, beyond it too, and it's done extremely well. And so I'm just fascinated by to see the evolution and can't wait to see what's next.
0: There was a game that went viral on Reddit recently, which is just how fast can you click your mouse? People were just like just comparing the clicks to see how how fast it went. And I, I didn't spend that long on it, but like I was just like, this is just, yeah, this is about as simple as you can get. It is interesting there because you, you make this really interesting point about free to play, which you can imagine when that sort of model, wherever it was dreamed up, obviously the first time conversation, someone pitched that in a meeting is like, well, why do we just give our product away? you know for quote unquote free obviously we'll try and monetize it afterwards but for you as a cfo as a strategic cfo if you put yourself in in that room and you've never heard of free to play you've never heard of or someone pitches like a completely new way to try and monetize a product what's the first thing that clicks in your head like if a founder comes to you and says like i've got this idea to monetize this
1: it's a little bit wacky a little bit crazy no one's done it before where does your thinking go how do you help them I always think in terms of, you know, strategy to the company, like forget the operational piece of it, where CFO comes in and kind of like does the finance, you know, and accounting. And there's like a lot of complexity in that, but strategically, like what does the company want to be, right? What's the vision of the company? The difficulty in gaming is that you're taking something that's really creative. And a lot of these founders have really creative ideas, right? And then you're trying to put business processes to then properly engineer something that's creative. And you're like, essentially trying to make money from art right and so like but how does that work um and i often kind of uh stress test the thesis of the idea through and there's you know like some of it is is not all science obviously right but it's like art and science blend of like what's the return on your investment right so how long does it take you to build something that can you know get into market really quickly and test you know in an alpha test with perspective users to see if it's quote unquote fun enough. Right. And it's usually that first five minutes, you know, do you have this somewhat, you know, addictive or uh, retentive loop where you're, you know, in games like there are you know the meta game, like there's the story there's the lore, there's the characters, there's like the actual functionality of like how a game works in the gameplay, but then there's also the grind piece to it. Right. You're grinding your way through like the grinding piece has to not be, so laborious that like you would just exit the game because you don't find there any meaning to it. Right. And so you kind of test those things through the kind of the alpha stage and, and, or, you know, and if it's like a console or PC game, you get to what's called a vertical slice first, right. You want to get to those things as quickly as possible. Cause you know, the thing I, I um, have observed with some of the founders is that depending on the background, right. if they've been a repeat founders, they understand that speed is the most critical thing, like get to, testing, you know, as soon as possible, like what's working, and what's not, because the market users, you know, effectively will tell you what's working and what isn't. And you've got certain founders that, you know, have come from much bigger organizations and they need a lot of funding. And and by the way, that's, it's been okay. for, you know, from say 2019 to 2020, right? 2021 even, where there's been a lot of founders have came out from big companies, used to big, big budgets, big teams, and yes, and those might be like AAA projects, but, you know, jury's still out whether those will work or not. And they've taken like multiple years, three, four years to try to build these games and they're coming out in the second half of this year and also next year. And so I think there's been some excitement, in the you know, some buzz in the VC industry kind of, you know, sort of waiting, right? To see if these will hit or not. But before that, you know, there, it was, gaming was quite difficult to fund, right? And, and so you're working with shoestring budgets. and And this is where I think going back to free to play, It was partially why free-to-play took off because, you know, the games are free, you can design them, you know, pretty quickly, right? Um, And the barrier to entry is quite low to attract users, right? Users aren't committing to your game because you don't pay anything, right? And so the art and science of how you then can extract money from the players after they start using your service effectively has been something that I think, I've alluded a lot of people, I would say, right? But yeah, it's extremely fascinating.
0: There's two interesting points. I mean, we'll come back definitely to the, the VC and investment front, because I'm very, very keen to get your perspective on that. You're obviously very well versed. But one kind of follow up I'd have to this is because you, you, even at the end there, you talk about how with the free to play model, success eluded a lot of people, right? And obviously, you, there's testing and all that stuff like that. But at what point do you decide that this isn't going to work? you need to quit. This sucks. This is not going to function because obviously you might fail. You definitely are going to fail a few times, right? I mean, that's just the nature of it. Is there anything that kind of like calls out to you that like, but hang on, we failed, but this thing is a winner. Like what what makes you make that decision or choice?
1: Yeah, I think it's, you got to look at the metrics. You got to be extremely disciplined and um, number one, be able to track your KPIs and track the right KPIs. Um, I always go down to you know, engagement, retention, and obviously sort of conversion, which is associated, right? But it's, it's just, you know, what are your users? And I think a monetization sort of second, uh, second, every sounds funny from CFO, it's secondary, but if you can engage your users so much that eventually they would pay you, right? And then I think of monetization as like the highest form of engagement, if that make any sense, right? So it's natural. It's not like, hey, we're, we're forcing you to pay money, Right. Uh, But it's like, you want to pay money because I love this product. I love this game. I love this experience, right? And so so I kind of, again, uh, pretty maniacal about tracking those three, you know, um, engagement, retention, and conversion of the users, right? And so, but then how do you get there? Then you got to get the product out as soon as you can, right? And obviously, the debate is with founders often is what's the mvp right because you can get to what's called scope creep right as you kind of get closer to launch like well if i didn't have this other feature it's not complete i can't fully test it's like okay well you're then you're racing against time because you have limited amount of runway usually right you need to have enough um you know in your bank that if the game comes out and does relatively well you want to have enough for marketing right again in the days of you know sort of pre idfa and these days again there's still marketing budget but it's You have to be a little more creative now, do partnerships, you know, maybe do a publishing deal or, you know, work with like influencer marketing where it's a little bit, you still spend through like Google and Facebook, but it's not as direct, you know, the performance marketing piece isn't as closely connected. So in the one-to-one ratio to like, you know, actually generating LTV, CAC and stuff like that, like like the traditional kind of free-to-play metrics and formula that you would run, right? Like it's a little, it's been shifting, right? And so... You want to identify, you want to You want to know, like, hey, what's the engagement like in the game? Ideally, like, again, if you're building a something that's more of a casual uh, game, the sessions, engagement sessions will be shorter, right? Because it's just not, you know, as deep. But then you're looking at, are they coming back multiple times a day, right? And this is where you measure kind of retention and or like, you know, day one retention, right? Day two, day three, and so, so forth. Are they coming back repeatedly? And the mobile platform is very suitable for casual games because there's a thing called push notification it's actually suitable for really a lot of different game categories but sort of the advent of like push notifications really help you know push you back in the game right especially the game itself is a social experience right it's called pvp which is um you know player versus player right if there's that kind of um, aspect to the game versus just pve which is player versus environment that you know there's a little bit of competition or a little bit of like kind of You know, emotion that you have against you know whether they're really your friends or friends you've just sort of met or just other users that you have in the game that will draw you in. Especially if the push notification tells you someone else is doing something, like wait a minute, you know, I want to get back in here. I want to compete. I want to do this. I want to do that. Right? That's really helpful for that that engagement uh, metric. But the game itself has to stand right. If it's not fun, it doesn't matter whether your friends are doing this or that in the game. Like you're not coming back. So. It's quite convoluted and quite complex of a business model to run.
0: Obviously, there's the metrics and you, you, can, you, can, you can sort of try and plan these things as, as much as you can. But as you also mentioned, like, it's not a science either. Like, remember that game Flappy Bird that just took over the world? Like, it was just this guy in Vietnam who made a game with Flappy Bird. I, I love that game, actually. I should get back on it. It's, it's something a little bit
1: intangible to it too. You know what I mean?
0: It's the art, like you said, which makes it
1: like, quite tricky. Yeah, no, and I think the creator of Flappy Bird had maybe a hundred games. Uh, that's what I heard. Right, a hundred games before that, that all kind of flopped,
0: <laughs> Flap or flapped. In his instance, I would say, yeah, exactly, exactly. You've spoken a little bit about VCs and investment and so on already, and you actually uh, alluded to something that I was quite interested in. You kind of uh, seemed to mention that gaming and investment weren't always the most comfortable of bedfellows. Is it would that be would that
1: be true? Absolutely. I mean, gaming at the end of the day is still susceptible to kind of being hit-driven, right? Just like uh, you would with, say, movies and uh, music, right? It's like, well, how do you know, you know, this new artist or new, you know, uh, new actor or actress and so so forth? How do you know they're actually, you know, or the storyline, the new director, whatever, right? Like, how do you know this combination of these things? Because it's more or less in art form, right? will actually generate, number one, interest from people that are going to come in, number two. Interesting enough, people will stay in, number three. Like, are they actually going to pay, right? I mean, it's just, it's difficult. And so when you step back and think about it, and I'm not a VC, by the way, but just as a VC, you know, and then ones I've talked to, it's been difficult to invest because it's sort of like, you know, trying to win the lottery and that's not like a comfortable position for investors to be in, right? Like people are giving you money and you're charging them a management fee and then you're just sort of relying on luck. That doesn't sound like a great, you know, way to be responsible to your limited partners. But then over time, you know, it's it's been a huge category. It's been growing, and so people start to kind of understand. Wait a minute, there's a way to get there, right? And so I would say, uh, for the longest time, it's been games that monetize well through more sort of combat and kind of uh, a machines. We had games that were kind of like you know more like resource fairing and like warfare, right? And so. It creates a lot of emotions and a lot of need to spend money because you want to defeat the players you're playing against, right? On a 24-7 basis, Supercell had a bunch of games and they're still, you know, quite successful that are, again, about, you know, competition, right? Kind of the combat or fighting element to these games, right? And then those, again, tend to, um, you know, do pretty well because there's a natural kind of uh, need to spend money to build up, you know, your resources or your troops and, right? Your powers and stuff like that. Then when you battle one another, inevitably like the resources will decrease. So then you go and buy more, right? Or you accrue more over time. But then if you're in a hurry, you'll buy more. So that's like a pretty, and then there's like just one aspect of how you would monetize, but that seems to, to have like worked pretty well. But then the, um, I think the monetization for games, which are more casual that that's been, you know, I think more difficult to figure out. And so I'm not gonna say it's, it's luck, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think, uh, it's, from a VC's perspective, it's um, sometimes just harder to to read at least before their success, right? So a lot of these companies have had to somewhat bootstrap themselves, right? Or like you know, on a shoestring budget, get something out, show the metrics that then the VCs will understand. Oh, okay, I get it. Here's the D one, here's the D three, D seven, D twenty eight. Here's the monetization. Here's the you know, ARPDAL, ARPU, whatnot. I can now project it out further. But they're not getting funded prior, right? And so they've been coming into the game a little later, like sort of post traction. So that's been difficult. But then you had this huge influx because, as you know, kind of the general bull market has pulled, you know, all the value of assets up, you know, investors are trying to kind of look and try to figure out, well, where is the arbitrage, right? Where can I get something, you know, better bang for the buck, better ROI? They start to kind of focus on gaming again, right? And so I would say the last, you know, three, four years, I mean, dozens of new gaming funds, some smaller, some very, very large, have come out of, I wouldn't say nowhere, but just like a high degree of interest, I think, from uh, limited partners saying, hey, you know, what is this category called gaming? Right. It actually does very well. Right. I'm reading all the, you know, all the news about uh, how gaming is taking up you know, a lot of people's time and the new generation, right. Think about, you know, Gen Z's and even, you know, right. The future of, you know, our kids, like all we're seeing is the kids, you know, playing games or watching other people play games, right? That really, I think, came to a fruition and became a reality for investors during the pandemic, right? Everyone stuck at home and they were observing their kids and going like, that's all they do. I should be investing in this, right? And so from the death of the pandemic, you know, not only did kind of the, you know, a part of it is like the government not wanting to kind of face a real recession. So a sort of naturally induced recession, right? So then rates, you know, kept going down, interest rates kept going down. So we're juicing kind of the the economy when, you know, arguably, I mean, now we're sort of, we've been paying for it, you know, if you will, paying it back, I guess, right? In a way, like with the volatility in the last few quarters, but like arguably, you know, the Fed should have kind of let everything sort of subside and so on and so forth and let the economy pull back. But there was so much fear that the pandemic would destroy everything economically that then they juiced it and so you know when you're at zero in interest rate and there's nowhere else to kind of put your money right and combined with like this a little late to the game but this aha moment like wait a minute gaming is great you know look at all these companies you got the you know roblox going public and so they like everyone's like oh cool like let's jump on this bandwagon as an lp i'm demanding my investments now to have some exposure in gaming that then sort of led to this influx of just a number of new funds that were created, you know, big and small and stuff like that. But it's been amazing. And so also with that, they now need to deploy capital. And so then you're getting these teams that are raising, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 million coming out, you know, from... And they're, again, well-established teams come out from the, you know, Bungie, Riot, you know, some of these like like Blizzard, some of these really well-known companies known for building amazing games. But that didn't happen, you know, years ago, Right. Um, number one, people didn't leave these nice staple jobs, number two, like they weren't getting these, uh, you know, big, big checks, right? Just having, you know, an idea, right? Um, A great team, but an idea. And it's like, well, there's still risk, right? Like, how, how do you know this team can come together and build something great? So a lot of this is sort of like, I would think of it as like supply and demand of funds, right? And then kind of general interest, general trends, right? And so now what we're seeing, you know, with the economy kind of, again, sort of not teetering, but, you know, maybe recession is coming. Maybe it's not. There's a huge debate, right? Things seem to be stabilizing a little bit, kind of the air is being let out of the balloon, like overall. What you're seeing right now is valuations are more attractive for VCs, but they're, you know, not really willing to put some funds forward because they're still trying to observe, like maybe valuations will become you know much, much lower over time, right? Like They're still observing. Everyone's sort of recognizing that 2021 valuations are kind of know, high watermark, right? That's just, you know, everyone paid for something because, again, supply and demand, right? Not that many teams and a lot of, you know, desire to kind of deploy capital into gaming. Now there's sort of a, I wouldn't say a great reckoning kind of in the industry, but just, again, a pullback and everyone's sort of observing, okay, this first batch, you know, this first wave of like highly valued, Great, you know, teams that are coming out, they're spending two, three, four years building these games that are all sort of launching kind of second half of 2023, you know, into 2024. Let's observe to see how these games will do, right? So there's been a pause more or less. If these games do, I think, well, relatively well, I think it's going to reignite kind of the interest, right, from from VCs. I mean, VCs generally try to chase sort of what's next, right? And not like necessarily what's been working, right? So there's been a lot of interest you know, kind of in 2020 around Web3. So all of a sudden, all these Web3 gaming, you know, uh, companies got started because there's a lot of funding and a lot of interest from VCs. That, you know, uh, bubble kind of, you know, like, you know, inflate it and quickly sort of deflate it, right? And we kind of went through this, like, crypto winter. It's thawing, but like, it's still, you know, again, um, not what it was effectively. And quickly mm-hmm. on the backs of that, all of a sudden it was like Gen AI. So now the gaming uh, VCs are very interested in Gen AI and how Gen AI can help, you know, change how, you know, companies not only kind of like build their games, but actually in the gameplay themselves. Like there are some very interesting gaming companies that infuse Gen AI so that, you know, as an example, the path that you take in the game is completely different based on, you know, kind of like the choice you you know, choose, right? So like it's, or like your NPCs in the game are now not NPCs, you they, they can have a, a lively dialogue like you and I are having,
0: you know. That's the example I I read about was the non playable character aspect. Because if you've played games for any length of time, it's like the classic joke of the took an arrow to the knee guy in um, Elder Scrolls, who they just kind of because they tended to just repeat things over and over again. But with Gen AI, they can like be much more like lucid and actually kind of speak to you, which sounded fascinating,
1: right? Right. And then and you think about that, that means like every time you go through let's say you replay the game or every time you come you know, across the same NPC character, it could just be a side character. Presumably that dialogue is different and richer. And all of a sudden that is higher engagement, right? Because now you can't expect what that per- person will do. It's not based on your interaction, right? And so it makes it a more richer experience. Engagement likely will go up. time will go up. Maybe you're then, you know, because it's more interesting for you, you'll spend more time in the game, you'll come back more and then you'll pay more, right? So it is part of that journey to, continue to kind of drive towards those, those key metrics. What are the downsides of
0: VC investment or, or even PE investment? Like what do you lose? Cause you talk about some companies, they even already have traction, you know, they have a good idea. It is growing. Like, obviously we know the upside, you know, you get, you get some money, you, you, you can invest in your in your product and your development,
1: but like, what, what are the downsides? I work with quite a bit of founders and, um, I think valuation sometimes becomes the focus, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. And I also understand it from a founder's perspective, right? It's a, it's a it has real practical application, right? When valuation is high, because you can raise the same amount of money for lower dilution. As a founder or a set of founders, like you tend to own, you know, again, lion share of the company. So who doesn't want to have lower dilution, right? For the same kind of influx of capital. So that's great, but unfortunately. Again, depends on times, right? But when the valuation is too high, it also kind of puts a false level of success and creates a much higher hurdle rate for the founders the next time around, right? So I think 2021, unfortunately, we're gonna be seeing the kind of some of the um some of the the <laughs> a bit of that the downstream effect from what happened in 2021 because of the the high valuation that we saw. Again, maybe not entirely the fault of founders right but it's when there's two or three vcs bidding for the same deal maybe at the end of the day it's a, it's a matter of price like oh okay you know i'll give you the same 20 million but instead of it at 80 million pre it's now 100 million pre and so and so forth they can you know they can it's just supply and demand at the end of the day right when the valuation's too high it, you have to think about the next round so the same 20 million dollars right does it get you to the next round let's say it's 20 million for series a like it will just be super generous here right well, the series B, you have to demonstrate that, you know, the game actually worked and that you're about to launch, right? But the same $20 million, if it doesn't get you there, all of a sudden raising, you know, at a hundred million posts, if you were raising at a uh, raise of 20 million at a 80 million pre is very different than raising, uh, raising your second round at 120 million posts, right? Because the VCs that were in, in that original $20 million round, they're looking for at least two to three X step up, right? So as valuations continue to go up, the hurdle rate becomes higher and higher. That You can do a down run, but it's extremely painful and also then signals to everybody that, oh, you haven't succeeded. I mean, down rounds are very much something that's, again, the practical negative part of it, where there's like, depending on the terms, like full ratchet and so on and so forth, but it's also seen as negative from the employees, right? Like you kind of lose the momentum. So I also often kind of advise to kind of get to the optimal valuation where it's fair both for the VC.
0: Is there a case for accepting, if you've got multiple offers on the table, and you think
1: the one offer is actually more appropriate, but the money's less. Is there a case to be made for taking that? Oh, absolutely. That absolutely. Again, not advocating for that, you know, uh, to be the reason, but it's it's often um, you want to work with people that understand your long term vision, right? Share share your vision. The journey as a founder, right? The ups and downs, right? Like you can look very successful at Series A and Series B and Series C could be very difficult because you couldn't get there, or you actually launched, you raise a bunch of money for Series B. For marketing you expand it and all of a sudden it wasn't as you know as big as you thought and you flatline so i think working with the right partner that's strategic that understands um that's effectively you know supportive of you right through the ups and downs that's more important right someone that you connect with it's like building a 10 year 10 plus year decade plus year relationship uh, friendship right that's what you're sort of trying to assess versus well you know am i going to get less dilution if this vc comes in or investor comes in right that's what i would advise because you know when everything's on the up and up everything seems fine right it's when they, when things kind of pull back you have to do a down round or somehow your game extremely successful hits a wall right now you have to pivot that's when you see the true colors of your investors right but if you have a good relationship they understand they're supportive of you right they will go through, they'll help you figure out what to do versus like, well, now that's your problem founder, right? Like you got to solve it or, okay, I'm going to force a sale of the company, right? (laughs) If they have the VCs have control, right? And that's something, maybe that's something that the founders wouldn't want, right? So I would, I would choose carefully, uh, look for someone that can be really helpful to you as like the primary um, objective. And obviously the valuation needs to be reasonable, right? It can't be like, I will only help you and be your friend if it's a great deal for me, right? Like that That doesn't work either.
0: It's actually, yeah, that's very true. Because I mean, like that's actually kind of using a sort of quote unquote negative and turning it into, like you say, into actually forging that stronger bond. It's like an optics thing. It's almost like, a yeah, it's like messaging.
1: Right. You know, as a founder, you basically, the joke is like you're always fundraising, right? Like Because you're either trying to bring in cash through your investment, you know, uh, through the investment community, or you're trying to bring in cash from your customers. Or both, right? And then You're just like, how do I sustain this? Or even when you're successful, I mean, it, again, obviously when you get to real level of success and you're profitable and this thing is like a runaway hit, there's a different story, right? But I'd recommend, you know, founders build a relationship with as many investors as early as you can
0: mm. yeah it's it's a really interesting one because I um, I've spoken to uh, the, the point you're raising is basically something that I think people intuitively understand about building those relationships even though you might not necessarily need it I spoke to a headhunter once and they they just made this point that you know you should just always be nice to headhunters they, 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 there's no harm that can come from like knowing a recruiter you know what I mean and having a good relationship with them even if you're not looking you know I mean because you know when the when the time comes then suddenly you're like yeah Yo, I'm ready to roll you know what I mean uh, you have that, like someone you can call on.
1: Yeah, It will never hurt you, right? To build a good relationship with uh, a recruiter. And, and, and the same thing here, right? It, n- it will never hurt you to build a good relationship with any investor because you never know. They might be like, well, I don't understand this, but here's somebody I know like, that understands this. They can come and help you. Or, hey, this is way too early, but you know, one day, you know, when you hit this level, give me a call, right? It's like, Great. And if you do, you know, get there. Like they're gonna remember that. Like, wow, you actually executed to what your your, your vision was five years ago. You know, I would love to invest in you, right? So, uh, yeah, I highly recommend doing that. And it's really, it's not just like in in the VC world. Like, it's really just building general relationships with people, right? In your in your career, but in your life and stuff like that, right? Like you wanna you wanna be a good person. You wanna try to keep your word. You wanna do good by people.
0: I can imagine as a CFO as well. You know, as someone who moves to new opportunities over the course of your career like having those contacts is also just such a like such a power move like if your founder or your ceo is like damn i need to start speaking to some investors and you're suddenly like oh well yeah i've got five people here that i know quite well Let's let's go meet them kind of thing you know what i mean but that must be like such a powerful thing to be able to do like to demonstrate value to your ceo or your or your partner or your like, co-founder or whatever
1: that's right yeah be well networked right um again build real relationships. I I try to do that, you know, outside of my my day job, I actually, um, I I do advise um, companies um, tend to be startups, you know, as you you can't tell. Uh, And then I also support a couple of VCs, but a lot of that is just um, has sort of grown organically because I just try to be helpful. So I often get calls from folks to say, hey, can you look at this? Would you mind talking to my friend that's doing that? And so on and so forth. And I kind of think of it as like 30 minutes of my time 45 minutes of my time, that it's just I'm there, highly engaged in the conversation, trying to be helpful, right? I don't expect anything in return, but inevitably that leads to something, you know, it's kind of neat that way, right? Like eventually it'll lead to some type of outcome where I, you know, get, you know, advisory shares in this company or I, you know, have economics and that and so on and so forth. It's pretty good. And so when you try to be helpful, you know, like it sounds kind of corny, but like the universe sort of helps you at the end of the day, right? So.
0: It's interesting because I think many CFOs wouldn't necessarily see their skills as something that you, you can almost like, well, I don't want to say side hustle in, but you could kind of, it's, it's just transferable skills, right? You can use that in all kinds of places and you can make yourself like, firstly, you can create a wonderful network. Secondly, you can create yourself like a wonderful career as well.
1: For you know the first half of my career, I, I didn't know how to position myself and I didn't know um, what I should be sharing and not sharing. Right. and. And then, as I kind of felt more comfortable with the process of, hey, when you share, you actually learn. When you tell your story, you actually learn something. Right? It's a funny process, but um, I, but when I leaned into that, I had some advice, you know, uh, on doing that before, and I was like, okay, let me let me try doing that. So the more that I would talk about what I want to do, or I would share more of my experiences, it helps connect you to the right people. Right? They kind of, they end up finding you the right. Uh, tribe, <laughs> as an example, the right network will seek you out because we kind of spread. It's like, oh, hey, you know, so you're really building your own brand in a way and your own um, unique, you know, positioning kind of in the continuum of all CFOs, like example, or you know, people in gaming, right? And, and, and for me, it's like the intersection of basically, and it's you know, maybe CFO plus is kind of how I think about my experience. I've done a lot of more like COO type of stuff as well, too. But it's sort of like, you know, Finance and operations, right? Plus uh, interest, and in, you know, relatively deep experience in gaming. Into the, co- the combination of those two things, right? I think helps um, position me differently. And and then then this relying on your network, the strength of your network, the strength of your relationships, right? And kind of the reputation of you as a person. That's how you kind of get these calls and, and the opportunities.
0: I looked at your LinkedIn uh, before speaking to you, and uh, I came across it's amazing quite long slide deck that you put together on sort of like a collage of all the things you've learned over time. For listeners, I would highly, highly recommend uh, taking a look at it. But there was one thing in there as well that I I noticed you had quite a strong perspective on hiring people and also uh, obviously the, the opposite end of the spectrum, which is firing people. I was curious to know about about that because I mean, like, obviously, from an operational perspective, and just in terms of headcount, in terms of um, the costs associated with labor, that that is in the usual remit of a CFO. But do you kind of do you go beyond that? Do you try and get more involved in hiring than you, you would traditionally expect the CFO
1: to do? In my current job today, I don't. But in in another life, um, I did. Right. Um, but a lot of that is just really more from the lens of you know trying to be. Helpful and strategic to the company overall, right? Versus just I'm staying my lane and I'm just looking at the dollars of the out, right? There's definitely that part of the equation. The reason I kind of I'm very passionate about talent in general is because I often say that that is the single more, most precious resource the company has, right? There's time, right? You know that your company gets bootstraps is, is a different timeline, but then often it's a runway. From the funding that you get to kind of execute something, but then you're using that time to do what? You're using that time to then hire people, and then they're spending their time to build the thing that you want to build to either get to the next level of fundraising or some type of like launch or some you know obviously eventually get to profitability, right? So it's really around like how do you deploy people's time and their focus? That's all really what it is to run a company, right? I mean, there's there's nothing beyond that the way I see it, right? And so it's all pivoting on the talent you have. So when you have great talent that work well together, you can see the result much faster. Now, it doesn't mean that you will succeed necessarily, but you'll get tangible results much faster so that if they're not the result that you want, you can at least pivot quickly, right? Just, you know, again, a function of time, right? Because you have limited runway. You can have the same amount of runway and same amount of time, but you have the wrong set of people. Then you may never even get to the, do we have something here or not kind of like uh, a proof point you you may never get there and you may just need more capital. And if you're good at fundraising, maybe you'll get that, but you, you know, so I'm very passionate about how do you bring in the right. And sometimes people say, wait, wait, I want the best candidate. It's not always about the best candidate either. Right. It's about the best fit, right? Like know where you are, you know, at in terms of the positioning in the marketplace and, you know, Hire those people that you think you know, are the ones that'll be here for the next 12, 18 months to help you get to that next level and quickly assess them. Be pretty disciplined with how you assess talent and you're always reassessing, unfortunately, right? That's how I kind of see myself too. I'm always reassessing my own performance, positioning within the company, within the industry too. Like, am I doing the things that I need to be doing on behalf of the investors and the shareholders and kind of all my constituents? you know, am I positioning myself correctly in the industry? Right. So I continue to kind of have the opportunities I want to have. Right. It's fascinating, but it's, it all comes down to the people at the end of the day. And, you know, on, on the firing piece, you know, it may sound scary and like, that's absolutely the thing I hate doing. Okay. Um, uh, when I came to fandom initially, and it, because of fandom was a kind of a turnaround strategy. And so we, ha- and then we were then ingesting, um, uh, a pretty large acquisition and there was, you know, some duplication of positions and so on and so forth and kind of to turn the company into a profitable enterprise because it wasn't profitable before. We had to, you know, let go of a bunch of headcounts, like 80 something headcounts, right? And that was like the first thing I had to do in the first 90 days of my job. It wasn't great. And the only thing you can do is do it um, as humanely and as professionally as you can, right? That's the only thing you can do, which again, you know, you want to, you don't ever want to kind of get to those moments where you're doing like a huge riff, right? I, I, again, it was unfortunate, but that was, I signed up for it because that was my part of my job to kind of help turn the company around. But ideally, you're not getting there. You're, you're not doing like 85 people. You're slowly performance managing out along the way because you're pretty highly disciplined. Again, there's, there, are, there are people that fit you know, what you're doing and there are people that don't. It doesn't mean the ones that don't Aren't great employees. This is just not the th- for them, right? And I've seen people struggle in a company where they themselves know they're not performing, right? And it's just a very difficult. It's it's really kind of a waste of time for both the company and the employee. Like you want to, you know, have the open dialogue. A lot of this is feedback, having the right one on ones, having the right performance management framework, so that you can, you know, allow them to understand like this is not the thing for you. Let me help you get to the thing that will fit you better, right? And in doing so, we're also uh, the company benefits from then having the ability to then hire someone that can do this job better, right? Everybody wins in the, the day. If you're not having those hard conversations in the beginning, you end up with right company not hitting its goals, right? We have too many employees now, and now we have to do big risks, big changes, stuff like that. Those are more painful than having the the right conversations early on, and, and you know again being professional, being. Very fair right, along the way um, and it's again a very um interesting topic for me right because it's really it 's it's about people
0: yeah have you ever have you ever read uh, or or heard read the book or heard the term uh, bullshit jobs this anthropologist now since past uh, David Graeber, came up with this concept, and the, he basically sort of uh profiled people who worked at these companies that didn 't have these sort of uh, like, like you were talking about, sort of like these adequate kind of management processes in place where the you know, frequent month ones, like uh, making sure people were like, know what they were doing, all this stuff. And they, these people were just completely adrift and they were effectively just had no work even at some cases, like they literally had nothing to do, but they weren't, people weren't noticing their presence either. And they were kind of just drifting along. And like, that happens too. I mean, like there's a phenomenon of people who are just like, so hang on, what what do you do? and like that's also not even a situation that you want to get in either because i mean like firstly it's bad spiritually and psychologically for the employee and also it's bad for the company like there's a lot more of that that happens i think than we often care to realize and if you don't have that discipline like that kind of drift can easily kind of come in
1: yeah i've never read that book but i i will pick it up and that sounds fascinating i totally agree hiring is such a again art and science um these days I'm hearing certain companies are using like psychometric um, tests to to really analyze um, and, you know, more for the executive level, I would say, but um, because it's very costly and time consuming and stuff like that. Right. I don't, you know, uh, doubt that at all. I mean, it's a, uh, it's getting people who are strangers, right? Like uh, for all intents and purposes to kind of come together and gel and bond and, and, and drive the company forward the right direction. That's very difficult to land. This is why, again, companies often throw uh, referral bonuses, right? Like if somebody who's ideally a good employee, right, for the company, and they know someone and they refer someone and we end up hiring a person, you give them a a recruiting bonus. Number one's cheaper, but number two, you know there's connectivity already in the company. And you tend to think, right, uh, people who are similar tend to hang out with one another, right? So if this engineer recommends another engineer because they know each other uh, from a past experience, like each other, they think each other's good, the person is getting higher, that's so much easier for the company, right? So much cheaper because the cost of replacing somebody is really painful, right? And I would say the cost of replacing somebody, the longer you go, right? It's more painful because, and it costs you more because you've now maybe had an employee that's been leading the company or executing or not executing or leading the company down the wrong path, right? The amount of work to kind of pivot or, you know, uh, pull the, pull the work back or throw it away all that work that that was done for two years, as an example, versus like, Hey, understanding the first three, six months, this person isn't working out and quickly kind of making the change. Like it's a topic I, I kind of love <laughs> noodling on.
0: Ed, uh, we are nearing the end of, uh, of our chat here. It's flown by. But uh, what I tend to try and do as the final kind of question is something a little bit more thoughtful, something perhaps a little bit more reflective. And it relates back actually to that slide deck you put on LinkedIn where you referenced about you know the highs being very high, and the lows being very very low uh, often especially when you're in the the sort of like startup space or or just generally working in business so i'm curious to know like do, do you have a particular low point in your career
1: i had a very very interesting experience um you know with a gaming company and it was um where i i learned tremendous uh, it, was, it was it was such a great experience for the first i would say 3 years because we went from a, um, you know, sub, I was like 40 employees when I first joined, like sub, you know, sub hundred sort of small studio, but with big, big ambitions of building, changing the world, really, right. Building really, um, high monetization, um, uh, games and, and building then a technology layer underneath that to really power everything. Um, and miraculously we did it like with, with the, again, shoestring budget. It was incredibly stressful but probably the most rewarding um period of kind of what i've seen in gaming because i've personally experienced that you know the the, the lows that then turn it into the highs right so we, the company came out of you know of sort of nowhere because a lot of people in the industry thought the the studio shut down because you know we didn't talk about ourselves for 18 months we were in the lab effectively right like building that was such a fun ride on the way up, right? Um, and then we were able to capitalize it a ton, and um, it opened up a lot of doors for opportunities in terms of the you know the business model itself and what we can do to market. And we were very innovative, like you know buying out Facebook inventory on a daily basis, and you know uh, using uh, celebrities like uh, you know Kate Upton and Arnold Schwarzenegger and. Mariah Carey to help market our games, stuff like that's extremely fun. But then, you know, a lot of, I think, my learnings through the some of the mistakes that the company would make in hyper growth, like came from that experience, right? I was less experienced to begin with, but then so with the rest of the crew, and we all kind of experienced this, maybe in our own ways, just uh, over-expanded, um, overgrew the headcount without a lot of the right, you know, optimal processes and systems and communication channels you know solidified right like we didn't talk enough about the culture so the culture kind of went sideways got really volatile in terms of like kind of how it felt you know on a day-to-day basis and so it got too big to to, to for any of us to handle and so it got to a point where i i couldn't see myself in the company and that was painful you know i was saddened by it and, and my departure process was even messier and so I would say that was a low point because then, and I had, you know, a lot of, um, kind of, you know, nights where like afterwards I would, I would think through replay some of the, you know, the meetings I've had where like, if I could have done this or that, maybe I would have changed the, you know, perspective of the founders and me, you know, maybe the investors think this or that, like, you know, like, did I do the right job? Right. Because ultimately what happened was then the company, um. Give myself a, a there was a percent percentage chance the company would fail, <laughs> despite the fact that it became a multi billion dollar enterprise, and uh, if it all succeeded, I wouldn't have to work a single day of my life afterwards, and I right, would have generational wealth. I know that was the type the outcome where like it's what you dream of in Silicon Valley, and it went from that to then you know a few years after I left, subsequently you know things panned out to kind of the worst case scenario, <laughs> which um, so that was really painful, but through the ashes of that kind of experience, I would say I put together and, and you know, some of that, the deck I, I some of the stuff in that deck came, they were inspired and came from the learnings I had from that experience. Right. And um, I kind of see myself now as the messenger to help other founders, not repeat those mistakes. If I join that company with the experience that I've now had, I would advise them exactly, you know, kind of the things I'm writing in that deck um, and, and much more. Right. Uh, and I would help the founders kind of see through to their vision and taking the company public as an example and, and, and fully kind of um, gone on to change the world the way they wanted to to be. Right. And so I think that would have been great, a great outcome. But um, I'm proud of the kind of, the, you know, the work that we did while we were there and, and it was, you know, a great experience. But um, unfortunately, the, you know, the lows were were very painful. There um, lived and survived it, and and able to kind of tell the story.
0: Yeah, it's the power of experience, isn't it? Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much for sharing that, Ed. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the CFO Playbook. Uh, thank you so much for your time. If people want to connect with you, where can they where can they find you? What do you tweet? are you are you in, are you on in Instagram what, what's going on
1: I, I'm on Instagram but I, I tend to be you know pretty private um, uh, with kind of uh, that uh, I try to keep kind of professional and personal separate but uh find me on LinkedIn I, I'm actually pretty active in LinkedIn I don't post a lot of stuff um, but uh, I, I do check LinkedIn every day. It's kind of uh, a way for me to connect with my professional network so yeah find me at Lou. And I think there are not not many Ed Lu's out there. So you should be able to find me pretty quickly. Thank you very much, Ed.
0: 358% ROI. That's a figure that'll grab anyone's attention and it's what Soldo delivers to its users over three years according to a total economic impact study by Forrester Consulting. To find out how Soldo delivers this ROI, download the full report on soldo.com. We'll put a link to the TEI study in the show description. Thank you for listening.